I invite you to turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, as tonight we're going to be taking a look at verses 7 through 12, 7 through 12, as we continue on in this section. One of the things that Paul is very zealous to do is, there we go, uh, is to <laughs> remind us, um, and not just the Ephesians, whom he was originally writing to, and the, uh, the churches in the vicinity of the Ephesus, but to remind all of us uh, throughout time of the importance of the gifts that Christ has given to the church. One of the uh, things that people often try to figure out is their spiritual gifts. For a while, there were these awful spiritual gifts tests that were being circulated uh, that usually um, uh, produced the wrong answers for, uh, for people and, and so on. But the fact is, the Word of God tells us that if you're a Christian and you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you are gifted. You are being given gifts for certain things, gifts of help, gifts of uh, prayer, gifts of teaching various things to various people in their particular settings. And everybody has a role to play, regardless of who they are. If you're a Christian, you have a role to play in the kingdom of God. And that role will be determined by Jesus, who sets people in the place that they're supposed to be. Now, many people don't think much of the role they're given or the place that they're in, but ultimately it is dreadfully important. And looking back, we will see how it was that God ordered everything perfectly so that things would, would turn out the way that he wanted. Um, I did not myself ever think that I would spend the majority of my life in a place called Fayetteville in North Carolina. Growing up, I had never even heard of Fayetteville, North Carolina. And yet, I've been here for 21 years, and I know that is because the Lord has sent me here. Um, and so, I, have, uh, I can testify uh, of the way that he determines where we go, and what we do, and how we serve him, and that he has done all things well. But, before we turn our attention to the word of the Lord and learn more about uh, his calling and his gifts, let's go ahead and turn to him and ask for his help. God, our gracious Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would be the light of our minds and that you would help us to understand your word so that we might be able to explain it to others. We're about to uh, deal even more deeply with that doctrine of vocation, of calling that we began to, to tackle that your, your servant Paul opened. I pray now, Lord, that you would help us to take these things to heart as a congregation and as individuals. It is my great hope, O oh Lord, that within this body there are men who you are gifting, Lord, and who you are raising up to serve you in office. We need a new generation of servant leaders, Lord. We need, we need elders. We need deacons. So I pray, Lord, that you would be putting it upon the hearts of the men in this congregation in particular to think, regardless of whether they are young or old, to think, is it the case that God has gifted and called me to an office in his church or to some particular calling. And I pray that we would all be asking ourselves, what are the gifts that I've been given that I can serve the Lord with and extend his kingdom? Now, Lord, help us to hear your word and apply it in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 12. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, 
When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The grace of the Lord be with you as you hear his word. What is it that makes a man an officer in the church? Well, in many cases, people uh, simply take to themselves that, uh, that office. They determine that uh, they're going to be a pastor. They're going to be a prophet. They're going to be an apostle. They're going to be the bishop and founder of a particular ministry. And they simply put up a placard. They see it all the time on Ramsey Street and in various places, the, uh, the Merck and so on. Uh, these placards go up over strip malls and it says prophet, founder, apostle, uh, and inspired leader, uh, you know, and then somebody that, uh, has taken this upon themselves. They have determined that that is their gifting, that is their calling, and they simply go to it. And in many cases, that is not the case. They are not actually called, they're not gifted, and they are running unsent. Uh, Jeremiah uh, delivering the Lord's words to his people, spoke of the false prophets of his own time in Jeremiah chapter 23, and he condemned those who were running unsent. The Lord had not sent them to be messengers to his people, and yet they had taken that vocation upon themselves, and they had run. So if there are people who take upon themselves an office, without actually having been gifted with that office. What, what is it then that, that shows that somebody is actually called to that particular office? Well, James Henley Thornwell said that there were three parts to this, and he's merely building on the work of other people who uh, looked at the biblical witness and said, these are the things that we find in somebody who is actually sent, somebody who is actually called to an office. Uh, he wrote this, he said, ordinary vocation to office in the church is the calling of God by the Spirit now, that's the first part of it, that God has actually his Holy Spirit dwelling within that person. And that also implies, of course, that the person to whom the Lord has extended a call is regenerate. One of the worst things that can happen is that you have an unregenerate minister, somebody who knows not the Lord nor the power of his word, who has taken upon themselves the office. So that was the case with the Sadducees, unfortunately, in Christ's time. <coughs> And throughout the, uh, the history of the church, there have been many who have not actually known the power of God and yet have set themselves up as proclaimers of his word. And usually that produces disaster and apostasy and declension, which is a decline in the, in the theology and teaching of the church. So it's the ordinary calling. Uh, it's the calling of God by the spirit through the inward testimony of a good conscience. The person looks within themselves, they do that needful introspection, and they can see that they have a clear conscience about this. They are not seeking the office in order to, to gain power or money. There are men, obviously, and women who have sought after uh, these offices in order that they might have control over people or that they might gather money in. Unfortunately, one of the things that we see in Africa and in the United States with the, uh, the spread of the word of faith movement is uh, the, uh, the phenomenon of men who have gathered inordinate uh, amounts, and women as well, who have gathered inordinate amounts of money to themselves 
through taking upon themselves the office of a modern-day prophet, according to their own testimony. They have Learjets, they have mansions, they have uh, all of these exorbitant luxuries. They talk about the number of Bugattis they, uh, they have as though this is a good thing. If somebody is seeking after the office of a pastor and they are doing so because they want money or they want power, they want control, they want anything other than to simply serve the Lord, or they know themselves to be reprehensible at heart, people who have secret sins or perhaps not even so secret sins that they are nurturing and continuing on in. If that is the case, then that person is manifestly not in possession of a good conscience and is not qualified for the office. Also, he listed the manifest approbation of God's people and the concurring judgment of a lawful court of the church. What is the manifest approbation of God's people? Well, that is the church has been watching you, and they believe that you indeed are called to the particular office that you are seeking. They see, for instance, if you are pursuing the office of a deacon, that you have a servant's heart, and that you have been serving God's people, and that your desire is to help the church to help its members and to do so in a sacrificial kind of way. Or if you're an elder and you're pursuing that particular office, that you clearly have gifts of teaching, that you're level-headed, that you're not somebody who uh, is pugilistic in the way that you deal with people, that is, you get into fights with uh, them on a regular basis, but rather you have an irenic, a peacemaking spirit but one that is constant and firm and that you understand the faith. And the people of God say, yes, you are clearly gifted by God for that particular office. And let me give you as a general rule, if you're the only person on the face of the planet who thinks you're called to a particular office, you are wrong, <laughs> okay? You are definitely not called to that office. If everybody in the church, when you say, I think I could be a, and they kind of look at you like, um, <laughs> brother, uh, no. So, and finally, he lists, and the concurring judgment of a lawful court of the church. It's not merely enough that you had that feeling of an inward call. Your conscience was clear about it. You knew you were pursuing it for the right reason. And God's people said, yes, I, I, I think, honestly, you are, uh, you're called to that. But that rather you are tested and then set apart by the church for that particular office. That... A session, for instance, in the case of a ruling elder, examines you, and then having found you to be fit for the office, they go ahead and they ordain you. We see all of those things happening in the process of ordinary ordination to offices like elder and deacon and pastor within the Bible. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 6, where we see the ordination of the first two, the first deacons in Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 3, Here's what the apostles tell the congregation there in Jerusalem. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so here they're calling the first deacons and they, they show the difference in offices. We are, we're set apart for prayer and the ministry of the word. These men are set apart for service. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. 
The congregation took the men whom they believed had God's gifting for that particular office, who were full of the Holy Spirit, as far as they could tell, who had a good conscience and a good reputation before men. And then the apostles set them apart for that particular ministry with prayer and the laying on of hands. We would call that process ordination. So those were the first deacons. And then in Acts 13.2, we see Barnabas and Paul being set apart as missionaries, as itinerating evangelists, taking the, uh, the gospel uh, to the places where it had never been. Acts 13.2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So God calls, God gifts those whom he calls. The people of God see the gifts operating within them. And then they are set apart by a lawful authority for that particular ministry. It's not simply the case that you wake up one morning saying, I feel like an elder, I feel like a deacon, I feel like a pastor. And then you suddenly run off and you set up yourself in that particular office. That is not the way it has been. That is not the way it was ever supposed to be. And Paul here is talking about the fact that within that calling is the idea, he's building on something that he was talking before. He's been talking about vocation. He's been talking about how every part of the church is necessary. And one of his favorite illustrations, of course, for the church was a body. He speaks of Christ as our head, does he not, again and again. And then he speaks of us as the members of his body. And each member is different. It has a different role. The ear is not an eye. The nose is not a foot. The heart is not a stomach and so on. But they're all vital. They don't do the same things. And yet all of them, there's a diversity of giftings. And each one of them is absolutely vital for the health of the body. Please understand that. You are not gifted all the same way. Everyone is not an eye. Everyone is not a mouth. Everyone is not a nose. And yet, they have a vital place within God's church. You may not think it. You may not see it. But if you are a Christian, brother, sister, you have a role to play. You have been given gifts for it. In most cases, it is not going to be an ordained role. And there are many people who think that if I'm not ordained, I'm not important. That's not true at all. Amen. One of the problems that I see in the church all the time is too many chiefs and not enough Indians, if you know what I mean. The church's work is primarily done by the members of the church, not the officers of the church. In the same way, I hate to say it, in the army, the most work is done, obviously, by the enlisted and not the officers. Now, officers are important. They have a role to play. But yet, the ordinary members of God's body, his church, and in one sense, every Christian is extraordinary. They all have a role to play, and we see that. And it is God who has determined where they are going to be, what gifts they are given, and that's you. So note this, he says not to a few selected members, but he says to each one of us in verse 7. Do you see that? But to each one of us, grace was given. That's a universal. If you are a Christian in the church, this grace was given to you and you have been assigned a particular gift. 
And it is not for your good, it's not to puff you up, but rather it is to be used for the edifying of the body so that the church may be perfected. And we'll talk about what that means. Now, you may not like <laughs> the role that you're given in one sense or another. You may not think it's, it, it's an agreeable role, it's not important enough to you, but brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, none of us is going to look back and say, my role was not important enough. We will see then in the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving his story in redemption and the way that he builds his church, the vital part of the edifice, the church that he was building, the body that you occupied. We may not think much of, of some of the minor organs of the body. We may think that some of them are detestable. Oh, who needs a small intestine? The answer is you do. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Brothers and sisters, all of them are vital. You are all vital. And that diversity of parts is also vital. We don't choose, God chooses for us. He chooses the position that we're in in the body. The eye, as I said, does not make itself an eye. The ear does not make itself an ear. And this is all grace. Please understand, we did not deserve to be part of his body any more than we deserved to be saved by him. The only thing that you contributed to your salvation, and always remember this, is your sin. You were lost. You were enemies. You were rebels when God found you. And the amazing thing is he not only deigned to save you, he gave you work to do within his kingdom. He called you and he gave you particular gifts. That too is the grace of Christ. And it's not founded upon your merit. The role you play is not based upon you or your previous capacity or how good you were. Let's just remember that the person who was writing this to these Ephesian Christians, what had he been before his calling? He had been a persecutor of the church. He had been a vicious Pharisee who had desired to put all Christians either in jail or to death. He had been someone who was hurting the body of Christ. And now he has been made into somebody who is helping, who is building, who is doing all he can for the body of Christ. It's the same with all of us, brothers and sisters. We don't deserve that position. It is Christ's grace that makes us who we are within the body. Now, Paul, with his Old Testament background, is very clear uh, that God's mission in building up his church was not something that started with the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament and that God spoke about it. And so he quotes in verse 8, Psalm 68, 18, about the triumphs of God over his enemies. Uh, and he uses this image of a conqueror. After a conqueror defeated his enemies in battle, he would take the spoils after the city was sacked. They would uh, accumulate all of, the, uh, all of the goods. So a Roman conqueror, for instance, it used to be the case that if they won a very big battle, they would have a triumph. And there you would see the, the chariot of the conqueror. And before him would go the captives who had been taken in battle and the spoils that had been taken. And then the gifts were put into the treasury and distributed to the soldiers and distributed in many cases to the citizens that had been taken from that particular battle. And he makes this comparison between Christ using Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Who is this who ascended on high? He's speaking of Christ. He's talking about the fact, obviously, God the Father did not descend into the earth and he did not rise again. He's speaking of Jesus. 
Jesus descended and then Jesus in triumph entered into heaven after he had triumphed on the cross and then in his resurrection over all of the forces of evil, all of the things that stood against you, all of the things that stood against the church, his body, he has triumphed over them. Sometimes we forget that, but the battle is won. It was won by Christ on the cross. We are now in the mopping up phase. We are in the the final days before the return of Christ and the end of all the turmoil and the strife and the difficulty that the fall of man has brought in. We await his final return. I often use the phrase, hold until relieved. That's what we're called to do. But we know that our general is returning to us and he will return with a mighty and unstoppable army and he will speak a word and the conflict will be over. That's what we're waiting for. In the meantime, he dispenses the gifts that he has won. In his exaltation, the Father gave him gifts to distribute through the Holy Spirit to his people. That's the great good news. The psalmist looked forward to that day when God would be distributing those gifts to his body after the the, uh, amazing uh, victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who are the captives? Taking captivity captive. Uh, In a Roman triumph, obviously, the captives would be the enemies. And so we can understand this idea that the captives of Christ would include, you know, Satan, sin, death, all of those things that he has come to vanquish. But the funny thing is, we're the captives of Christ as well, aren't we? We were once slaves of sin, and we were released from that bondage by his great work. One of the things that's emphasized, Paul makes that point again and again, we're the douloi of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're the bondservants, the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not an onerous slavery, it is a, it is a joyful slavery. We serve within the kingdom. To be a slave of Christ is, and it's, it seems contradictory, but it's not. To be a slave of Christ is to be free indeed. We have been subdued by his grace. We've been made willing in the day of his power. We don't have to be whipped to go to uh, our tasks. We We joyfully do them, serving as servants within the kingdom. So in one sense, we are the captives of Christ, but we are free indeed at the same time. Paul speaks then in verse 9 of his ascension. He goes uh, back and he, he points out, what does it mean when it says he ascended, but that he descended first? He came into the earth. God the Son Came. Jesus himself said in John 3.13, no man has descended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. He's the one who's being spoken of, speaking there of himself. He, the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, came into the world in order to triumph over our enemies and then to ascend triumphantly. And then it's, it's just a wonderful providence that we were doing the Westminster Larger Catechism on what is Christ doing now? When he ascended into heaven, he had that triumphant entry. Then he sat at the right hand, the privileged position of the Father. But he is still working. Do you notice that? He is interceding for you. Do you think about that? Do you think about the great privilege that you have in what Elder King was talking about? That there is one who is interceding at the right hand of the Father for you even now. You all sin. I know you. I sin too. You know me. But we have one who intercedes for us, a mediator, one who is a lawyer par excellence, who who can settle the matter. When we are accused by the accuser of the brethren, he 
speaks up for us. And he says, this one is one of mine. He is my child, part of my body. He is a prince royal in the kingdom. He is a son or a daughter of the living God. That's you. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased by his blood. And nothing can condemn you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are his. We, we live by that fact. And we uh, love the fact that he interceded for us. There is some question as to whether this is uh, when it was speaking descended. It's speaking about descended into hell. No, it's not. It's, uh, it's speaking simply of the idea of descending into the earth, descending to earth. This, we need to remember, brothers and sisters, was an infinite stoop for the Son of God. And yet he was willing to do that for your sake. And then he ascended back into heaven. Now, one of the things that we, uh, we remember, therefore, is there's one who has our nature in heaven, in the highest heavens, and who is there for our sake, and who will return also for our sake. He then lists one of the things that's very important, obviously, that we've been talking about, the fact that, that his ascending into heaven, his being given the gifts by the Father to distribute to the people of God, the spoils of his great victory, was for the sake of the building up of the church. I will build my church, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you remember. And part of that building is the equipping of the church, the perfecting of the church, the bringing it to its, its fullness. And that can't happen without people occupying certain roles. And he lists some of the roles that are being played there, uh, or being played there, that are being uh, put uh, before us there. We read, for instance, about the apostles. Now, while you may see, um, and I was talking about this before, the, the placards all over the city that list apostle and then the name of a person, there are no more apostles. This was an extraordinary office that was set for a time and that has passed away. Its role was critically important in the foundation of the church. Jesus called to himself, you remember, originally 12 apostles. They did not name themselves. They did not claim the office. It was not the case that Matthew Levi, seeing Jesus, got up from the toll booth, ran over and said, hey, I'm your guy. All right? I'm going to be following you now. No, Jesus went to him and he said, follow me. And then Matthew, feeling that internal call, accompanying the external call of Jesus Christ, got up, left the toll booth, left his old life, and followed him. The apostles were men who were called by Christ. So we see certain qualifications that these apostles had. First, they were immediately called and appointed by Christ. Jesus literally called them. That's true even of Paul. You remember he met him on the Damascus Road. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am the Lord Jesus Christ. He called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus literally called all of his true apostles. Uh, and it was the case that the vast majority of them saw and were with him before his resurrection, or they had the knowledge of Christ as Paul did by immediate revelation. Jesus literally revealed himself to him audibly, visibly, and so on. And he was given the gift of inspiration so that when he wrote or spoke in the name of the Lord, he was literally proclaiming the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. 
These are not things that are operating any longer. If somebody tells you, yeah, Jesus literally called me, you can say to him, no, he didn't. He has not yet returned for his people and the office of apostle is closed. There are no more apostles. The apostles did not appoint new apostles. The apostles ordained, as we saw in, for instance, Acts chapter 6, officers, ordinary officers within the church. But the uh, apostolate was an office that was closed after um, the last apostle was called. Then we see the name prophets. Now, prophets were active, obviously, within the apostolic church. A prophet is one who speaks for another. Aaron, for instance, was the prophet of Moses. And uh, the Lord spoke through these people. They were the servants of God. And everyone who was speaking by the inspiration of God was a prophet. Now, the problem is there were also false prophets, as you know. Men who said in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, thus saith the Lord, when in fact he had not said anything of the sort. And that's one of the reasons why Moses gave his list of, of qualifications that prove a man is a prophet in Deuteronomy 18. If he speaks and it doesn't come to pass, disregard the fellow. He, you shan't fear him. He's not actually called by God. Now, the question is, are there prophets today? The answer is no. This, too, was an extraordinary office. But we need to remember this. When prophecy is being spoken of, there's two components to it. There is foretelling and forthtelling. William Perkins, one of the great uh, early Puritans, wrote a wonderful book about preaching. He was trying to direct men about how to go about preaching the word of God. He called it the art of prophesying, speaking forth the word of God. All right, as we have received it. In one sense, when a man stands up and he says, thus saith the Lord, and he correctly exposits the word of God, this is prophesying going on. Not in the sense of he's predicting in an inspired way things that will come to pass, but he is declaring truly what it is the Lord has said. Perkins himself said there are two parts to prophecy preaching the word in public prayer. For the prophet, that is the minister of the word, has only two duties. One is preaching the word, and the other is praying to God in the name of the people. So we know that the extraordinary office of prophet is closed, but foretelling may be closed off to us, but foretelling is still the calling of God's ministers. Then we have listed evangelists. What were evangelists? Well, evangelists were itinerant preachers, men who went to places where the gospel had not been established, where there was no church, there were no sessions, there were no presbyteries. And uh, the idea is that men like Philip were sent to begin the work of establishing the church in a new location. There are actually some reformed denominations that still have the office of evangelists. They appoint men, they give them extraordinary powers that they wouldn't normally have. Normally it takes a session to ordain, to test and ordain, ruling elders. Once you're given the power of the evangelist, you have the ability to raise up and ordain ruling elders. It's tremendously helpful when it, we're talking about sending men off into areas where there were no churches, where there is no church. So for instance, I, and I'm not absolutely certain about this, so I can't speak infallibly. Well, I can never speak infallibly, but the, uh, I can't speak uh, to it absolutely. But I believe Bertie Kona, when he went to Albania, and a place where there was no church was given the powers of an evangelist because there was no session, there was no presbytery, there is no church structure to assist and aid him in all of those parts, no, no church court. That is an evangelist, someone who goes out, who is given authority 
by the courts of the church to begin the process of establishing churches in new places. And then the ordinary office, pastors and teachers. Um, and the interesting thing is, uh, there's a huge argument. Is pastor and teacher two different offices? I happen to agree with men like Hodge. No, it's, it's, part, of the same, it's part of the same office. Pastors and teachers are, are the same. Uh, he says, um, there is no evidence from scripture, this is Charles Hodge, that there was a set of men authorized to teach but not authorized to exhort, that is to preach the word. The thing is well nigh impossible. The one function includes the other. The man who teaches duty and the grounds of it does at the same time admonish and exhort. And in fact, we see in the qualifications for a bishop, that is an elder, an overseer, uh, a bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. It is simply the case that if you are an elder within the church of Jesus Christ, you must be a teacher. If you're a pastor, a shepherd within the church of Jesus Christ, you must be a teacher. You have to be able to teach, but you also have this idea of guiding and governing. The idea of shepherd, uh, pastor, poimen, uh, literally means a shepherd. And shepherds in the Old Testament, we remember, kings were called the shepherds of their people. They oversaw them, they, they guided them, and so on. Well, why were all of these men given to the church, these, these men who were gifted and called by God? Uh, and verse 12 explains that to us. It begins that pivot point where it says, why has God given these men? Why has he put them in the body in the place where they are? Well, we'll discuss it at greater length because as I said, it's the pivot point. And we'll start with verse 12 uh, next Sunday. But for the perfecting of the church, for the perfecting. And we remember the church is not the building. The church is you. Why were these officers given? They were given for your sake, to build you up to make you able to serve the Lord in your particular place, to help you to grow in grace, to minister to you, to guide. And a good shepherd does so sacrificially like Christ led his servants. He doesn't do so glorifying himself. His calling is always to guide his people to the one who they need to hear, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is an under-shepherd, and he always remembers that. But he remembers his job is to edify the saints. To edify has that sense, uh, you know, edifice, a building. It's to build them up. That's what pastors are supposed to be doing when it comes to the saints. My calling is to build you guys up in the faith, not to puff you up. And I have to make that distinction. What's the difference between building up and puffing up? Well, I could stand up here every, evening, or every morning and every evening and just get the bicycle pump out, attach it to your heads and go, and gradually, you know, you wouldn't have an inflated view of yourself. You would think much of yourself. And unfortunately, when that happens, men, when they're big in their own eyes, Christ becomes very small. They become arrogant. They become pretentious and they become prone to sin. Um, my job is actually to make you solid, uh, to chip off those parts that aren't going to work within the building that God is making, to, to do all that I can to give you that encouragement that comes from the means of grace, to point you to the word of God, to admonish, to exhort, to stir you up, to love and good works, to do that kind of thing, but to do so always going back to the word of God, not to, to mere flattery, not to, to anything other 
than the firm foundation that Christ and his apostles have laid in the word of God. The work of the ministry, therefore, is a work of building up. It is a work that is hard. And if you want to be a pastor, you are pursuing something that is good. But please understand, this is one of the hardest callings that anyone can ever be called to. And not just in yourselves, but in your family. If you were a pastor with a wife and children, and I would always recommend that pastors be married, their families also end up inevitably, although they are not ordained, they are not paid, they end up joining in the work and they suffer alongside the shepherd. My own family, and I didn't really realize it until recently, the sacrifices that they've made over the years, the way that the struggles that I had, for instance, within our previous denomination affected them. I always thought selfishly, and God forgive me for this, of the way it was affecting me, but I didn't think enough about the way it was affecting my wife and my children. And it's a hard thing. It's a good calling, but it is a hard calling. And so if you do not have that resilience, if you do not have that strength, if you do not understand that, that this is something where the glory is not on this side of glory, then don't come to it. If you're afraid of tribulation, if you're afraid of hard work, if you're afraid of being attacked, do not come to it. If you're stubborn as a mule, that's a good beginning. But you need to be somebody who is able, not in your own strength, but to weather the slings and arrows, I'm quoting Shakespeare, not the Bible, but the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and occasionally even your own denomination or congregation. Every pastor learns at some point sheep bite and he has to learn not to bite back. And that's hard, but you can do it through Christ. Now, one of the things that I would encourage you to do then is to remember, as you have read these things, and this, this is not, you know, I'm not saying this in a self-serving way. This applies to every officer in the church, not just this church, but the church of Jesus Christ. And I know most of you will be in several churches in your life. Several of you already have been. But remember, those officers, if they were truly called by the Lord Jesus Christ, they are God's gift to you. And they are there for your good. So do not fight against them. They are there for the edifying, that is the building up of the body of Christ. That is their work. I love what Calvin said about their work. He says, he could not, says Calvin, exalt more highly the ministry of the word than by attributing to it this effect. For what higher work can there be than to build up the church that it may reach its perfection? They therefore are insane who neglecting this means hope to be perfect in Christ, as is the case with fanatics who pretend to secret revelations of the spirit and the proud who content themselves with the private reading of scripture and imagine they do not need the ministry of the church. If Christ has appointed the ministry to the edification of his body, it is vain to expect that end to be accomplished in any other way. We need those officers just as much as we need all of the organs in our bodies except perhaps appendixes. We, we need those ministers. We need their help. We need their exhortation. I am so glad, and I, I say this truly, that God set pastors who knew the word and elders who knew the word in my way, in my life, who were there to guide, who were there to cut me down to size, who were there to point me in the right direction. 
clear up my misunderstandings, counsel me, discipline me when necessary. I am grateful for them. I'm still grateful for the ministry of the officers in this church. The session does not just look out for you, it looks out for me. They occasionally will listen to me and deliberate and say, no. <laughs> no. And that too, I have to remember in that moment, I have to say, these men are a gift. <laughs> and that we really want to do it. The Lord has said no through them to me. And then listen to them. Now, what is the instrument that's used in all of this? It is scripture. We remember what Paul said, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what does a good minister do? What does a good elder do? He applies the word of God to you in your particular setting for building you up and the other means of grace that God has given. Now, this means, just too short because I'm completely worn out and I've gone on for too long, but two quick applications. The church needs officers, but whatever you do, do not find officers where God has not put them. If God intends for a man to be an officer in the church of Jesus Christ, he gifts him. He makes him apt to teach. He makes him above reproach. He gives him all of those gifts that are listed within the pastoral epistles by Paul. And the important thing that you have to remember is that just because a man is good in another vocation does not necessarily mean that he has been called to pastoral ministry. Far too often I have seen business leaders exalted to the office of elder because they were important within the community. And yet spiritually these men were utterly bankrupt. And as a result, they did no good to the church. On the other hand, I have seen men who were low and humble and didn't have a big name in the community who were passed over and yet they were pious and zealous and loved the word of God. It's those men who are full of the spirit and who are apt to teach and who know the word and who love it and who love the author of it. Those are the men you need leading you. Those are the men who you need as your guides, men who will point you to Jesus Christ, not men who are full of the world. Find men who are full of the word and therefore listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.22 when he warns, he says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. We need to make sure that a man is sound in the faith before we ordain him. But remember, these men are gifts. They're given to you for your good. Treat them as such. Let's go before the Lord now. God, our Father, we do thank you for your exhortation, your teaching. We thank you for the officers that you gave. We thank you for the apostles. Lord, they, if the office of pastor is difficult, the office of apostle, without you, it would have been impossible. And all of these men laid down their life not just for your sake, but for the sake of your body, the church. And we are thankful for them. We're thankful for their example. Help us to, to have the, the perseverance of a Paul, to the, have the boldness of a Peter, to have the, the compassion of a John. Help us to follow their example and to listen to the words that they gave us. They are sure and sound. And help us, O oh Lord, to value the officers, the deacons, the elders, the pastors, whom you've given to your church. And help us to remember all of us. If we are Christians, we've been given gifts.